if I can take one thing from my journey up to now, up to 2002, it would be that it's really important to stop waiting for other people to sign on to your goals and your dreams. You got to stop waiting for other people to somehow give you permission to take that leap. Welcome to the Juxtaposed Journeys podcast, and happy National Kitchen Klutzes of America Day if you're tuning in from the U.S. I'm your host, Eric Spitz, and in this episode I chat with Christopher Pellegrini. Christopher grew up in Vermont and became captivated with the idea of brewing from a simple school assignment researching the Prohibition era. That captivation turned into brewing at home, working for Outer Creek, becoming the youngest commercial brewer in the United States, and eventually becoming a shochu and awamore expert in Japan. Since those humble beginnings, Christopher launched Honkaku Spirits in March of 2020 with the mission of bringing Japanese spirits to American consumers. He's a contributor to the award-winning Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails, and the author of the first non-Japanese book about shochu and awamore, The Shochu Handbook. Christopher also co-hosts two podcasts focused on the education of Japanese spirits, Japan Distilled, and Sake on Air. Our conversation ranges from Christopher's origin story into the craft beer world, to his transition into craft spirits, to different ways to enjoy shochu, and even some cultural differences between the United States and Japan in regards to doing business. Christopher truly lives up to the title of expert for shochu and awamori, so be sure to check out the resources in the show notes to obtain more information, and to stay updated on all the exciting things Christopher has in the works. With all that in mind... Just sit back, relax, and get ready for Christopher Pellegrini's journey as a brewer and expert of Japanese spirits. All right, so Christopher, welcome to the Juxtapose Journeys podcast. And first of all, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat with me. No, my pleasure entirely. Thank you. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited to get into this. Yeah, so we are here to talk all about Japanese spirits, which I am admittedly not an expert in, which is where you come in. I was listening to your interview on Late Boomers podcast, and I thought you had a pretty interesting origin story into the world of alcohol in general. So (laughs) can you start by explaining where your interest first began? Sure. It was part of a U.S. history high school class where I was supposed to be researching one thing, but my attention was grabbed by the fact that Everybody during this certain era in in American history was making booze at home. And Mm -hmm. teenage me was fascinated by that. And (laughs) teenage me stopped researching what he was supposed to be researching and started researching home brewing and bathtub gin and moonshining and all of these other (laughs) traditions that cropped up during Prohibition. That was the era that I was supposed to be researching in high school. And Sure enough, after not too much research, I realized that making beer at home is not the most difficult thing to do in the world. The the biggest challenge is just keeping everything spick and span clean. Mm -hmm. So me and a good friend of mine who was in the same U.S. history class, we decided, hey, well, we should do that. And so we did. We started home brewing, which was of questionable legality. I will grant everyone that. And (laughs) we did it very under the radar. But after several botched batches, we actually got pretty good at it. And (laughs) our flagship ale was called Tingler. And then we had a a Father's Day 
focused dark ale called Daddy's Dark. And it was <laughs> it was a lot of fun. We had our own labels. We would go to the the local bar and buy all of their heavy beer bottles off of them. We'd pay the redemption and take them out of there and then, you know, blast them clean and, and reuse those bottles. Obviously, because we didn't we weren't mm. about to call up an, a proper bottling company and have them deliver pallets of bottles to our, to my house. <laughs> um, that would have let the cat out of the bag a little too early. But we were able to do that for a while. And that was the beginning of my journey through the beverage alcohol industry, which continues to this day so, several decades later. Yeah, no, that's so cool. And I love that story so much. And it's, it's so funny how you can get down these rabbit holes just from such a simple, you know, humble origin of just a an assignment where you're supposed to be researching prohibition. And then it turns into just uh, doing some homebrews, which <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's wild, too. Yeah, because that's that scene in, in general has just exploded so much over the years to where it's it's almost just become a lot more normal for people to to homebrew and stuff and it's 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 a really interesting shift it's for sure such a great hobby too i really mm -hmm. wish that i could continue doing it i just don't have the time or the space right now yeah but it is a really <laughs> satisfying hobby and i'm so grateful that we did that because it definitely set me on the path that led me to where i am today yeah, definitely. And yeah, speaking of which, I mean, from there, it sounds like soon after you started working for Otter Creek Brewing. And I, I just got to say real quick, I should preface Otter Creek Brewing is in Vermont. And Vermont is such an incredible craft beer scene. It's I absolutely love it. And I mean, I'm a Michigander myself. We get spoiled with some really great breweries, but I mean, Vermont has, you know, you have the Alchemist that makes Hetty Topper and Focal Banger. You got Four Quarters Brewing that's right. doing some amazing stuff. Lawson's Finest Liquids. I mean, Every time I'm in the area, I just load up and get like as much <laughs> at the Alchemist as I can. And it, I, there's so many just wonderful breweries there. <laughs> yeah, it it we are we're spoiled. Working at Otter Creek, I was there during the the early boom times of the mm -hmm. of the craft. It was they were all called microbreweries at at that time. I don't think anybody was really calling it craft beer yet back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. But I started working at Otter Creek right when they were switching locations and. It was an exciting time because there were all of these new outfits in the state. Everybody was making really, really exciting drinks. And there was a pretty clear division between those that had rock solid, crystal clear mission statement and those who were just trying to grab market share. And the ones who were trying to grab market share no longer exist. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was overpopulation on the beer shelves and then... There was a lot of shakeout in the industry. And what you have left from the old guard, most of them have been purchased by other entities, but you still have a lot of pretty entrenched quality that is now being surrounded by perhaps even better quality. Some of the brands that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, of course, are the usual suspects. And it, it was a really <laughs> exciting time to be a teenage brewer in, in Middlebury, Vermont, and to be you know, making something that people were really excited about, talked about, and every bar in Vermont was like, oh, we got to have that on tap. That was really, really fun for me. Yeah. Oh, that's so amazing. And uh, yeah, that's something you, you can't help but get caught up in, I feel like, uh, to have something and to produce something that people seek out and they line up for and it's so sought after. I mean, that's such a fulfilling feeling and that's, I, I can completely understand why you can get caught up in something like that. Oh yeah. And I was such a little jerk too. When I mean, <laughs> uh, underage kid, you could not talk to me about beer. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sure. not. Just boost yeah. the ego right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. My friends are like, look, God, dude, we got, 
we're going to this bonfire. We got all this rolling rock. It's going to be amazing. I was like, what are you doing with that roll? I don't know. No, sorry, I don't want to. I don't want to cast aspersions here, but you know right. that was my attitude. You can imagine a, a 17 year old with that type of snootiness to him. I was nigh on insufferable. <laughs> right. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you were either the one of the youngest or the youngest brewers really in the in the country, or at least in the state or so, weren't you? Yeah, it was. It was for a couple of years. I was the youngest commercial brewer in the country, and that's just because, of course, anyone who's hiring. Mm-hmm is not going to hire someone underage to work in a brewery generally. Right. That's, you know, if you if you think about the what they're looking for in, you know, a floor hand or somebody who's going to be working in the brew house, it's not somebody who's underage. And mm-hmm. the way that that worked out was eventually my parents found out about my home brewing operation. They were not impressed and they <laughs> sh- shut it down pretty quickly, but that didn't really push me out of thinking that I wanted to actually open my own brew pub at some point in my life. I needed to study more. And Mm -hmm. my physics teacher at high school somehow had a connection to Otter Creek or he had heard something and he announced to us that, hey, they're looking for apprentices. And I was like, Mm -hmm. ka-ching, okay, here we go. So I set up a, (laughs) drove over to the brewery and talked to Lawrence Miller, who himself was a home brewer who turned his hobby, his passion into a very viable business. And I said, mm-hmm. hey, I, I want to learn how to do this. I've been doing it at home. And he's like, I don't want to hear about that. And I said, okay, I won't tell you about the illegal stuff, but can you please let me <laughs> learn how to make commercial beer, beer in a, in a really state-of-the-art facility? And he said, well, okay, apprenticeship, <laughs> sure. I mean, you're not going to get anywhere near the, near the brew house for a while, but we can mm-hmm. teach you everything else in the interim. And so that was seller work and that was packaging and it was engineering and it was just general logistical issues and managing. Mm-hmm. I, I, didn't, I wasn't managing anything, but I at least got to peer over the shoulder of people who were making very, you know, in the moment decisions about how to solve certain bottlenecks and, and other problems. And mm-hmm. then one fateful day, you know, the teenage me is called into an all hands on deck meeting and everybody knew that our number one brewer had wrecked his back mm-hmm. and he was basically laid out for a couple of months and he wasn't able to lift heavy bags of grain. He wasn't able to go up and down the brew house stairs. So he was just out of commission. Mm-hmm. And the compounding factor was that our second brewer all of a sudden had just decided to leave the state in order to join the circus down in New York City. I kid you not. <laughs> That is not a, that I'm not even jo- joking. This actually happened. So all of a sudden, this s- small and growing craft brewery in Middlebury, Vermont, was without any full time brewers. And the CEO, Lawrence Miller, wasn't really ready to take a step back from how he was trying to expand the business to go back to production. So he was like, does anybody in here know how to brew? And lo and behold, I was the only one who had any familiarity with the concepts. And Mm -hmm. I had already, even though I wasn't explicitly supposed to be doing so, I had spent all (laughs) of my free time on the brew house tower just talking with the two head brewers about what they were doing, why they were doing it, and how everything connected. So I I knew the flow. And Mr. Miller was like, all right, Pellegrini, you're up. And I got the night shift, and that's how I became the youngest commercial brewer in the United States. And it was uh, a very, very gratifying experience. I loved it. No, that's amazing. Uh, Gosh, I love that story so much. And I feel like you 
you almost hear it as a saying all the time of just like, oh, they're going to run off and join the circus. But I don't think I've ever actually met anybody <laughs> he who did. literally that's what they did. <laughs> he wanted he wanted to he just wanted to be. A, I don't know. I I would argue he all, he already was a clown, but hey, he, he wanted to put it on his card or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he was yeah. gone. Jeez, the, I mean, the stars truly aligned for you, and then you got put in the spotlight with that, and that's such an amazing story for sure. And now I, I'm jumping drastically, I realize here, but okay, so you get engulfed into the craft beer scene or the microbrew scene or whatever you want to call it at Otter Creek Brewing, and then fast forward to today, I, I know you're you know an expert on shochu and awamari uh, in Japan, and now how, like where did the shift ultimately start from craft beer to the kind of the craft spirits world? That's, yeah, that's a great question, because when I first moved over here, it wasn't even my idea. I <laughs> followed my girlfriend over here. She really wanted to live in Japan for a year, and I was like, sure, sounds like fun. So mm -hmm. I, I moved with her, and I got a job, and she went to a special language school to improve her, her Japanese language ability, which honestly she didn't even really need to do, because her Japanese language ability is stellar. <laughs> but uh, just in order for us to both have a visa over here. And I came over without the word shochu or the word awamori in my cerebrum. There was, those words did not exist. I had never heard them before. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I knew about Japan in terms of alcohol was the many types of beer that are often contract brewed outside of Japan, such as, you know, like Sapporo and... I think Asahi Super Dry maybe as well, and are mm -hmm. reasonably popular in the States anyway. So I knew about those sort of, and then I knew about sake, or mm -hmm. or as, you know, at the before I learned anything about Japanese, I used to pronounce it sake, like a lot of other people outside of Japan. And mm -hmm. incidentally, sake, sake just means alcohol in Japanese. A little <laughs> trivia there for you. So shochu and awamori and beer are also technically sake, but whatever, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So sake <laughs> usually is taken to mean the beverage, the alcoholic beverage made from rice from Japan, which is arguably, and I don't think anybody disagrees with it, with this, one of the most famous alcoholic beverages made or produced mostly in Japan, although it is produced in other countries today. And I was not particularly positive about being in the land of sake because I had multiple negative experiences with it in the States back in the 90s when I was in college. I mean, it was it was so poorly handled and mismanaged in, in some of the quote-unquote Japanese restaurants and izakaya over there that we used to refer to the juice as dirty feet because it was so <laughs> skunked. And I came over here and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have a year to figure this out. And of course, I was enough of a you know alcohol nerd to to figure that I or to understand that I didn't understand it all, and it, mm -hmm. that it, I was going to need to go and spend some due diligence researching the the category in its homeland. And so I was ready for everything, and I came over here and I was quickly disabused of the dirty feet notion. I mean, the <laughs> sake is an unbelievable category of brewed alcohol with just a ton of breadth of flavor and aroma and just everything. It's a, it's an absolutely beautiful thing. And I really was taken by it at first. And I drank as much of it as I could reasonably get my hands on. And I figured I only have a year. I got a lot of work to do here and I got down to it. But one day while I was sort of in the midst of my sake, my very early sake journey, 
I was introduced to shochu by a very bored bartender. And <laughs> I remember it was raining. There was nobody else in the joint. You have to understand that I didn't really speak much Japanese at that time. Read none. And <laughs> this guy did not speak really any English or did not care to try. But I had been going to this little joint, this little hole in the wall for enough weeks in a row that he acknowledged me when I would come in and he, he didn't mind me being there. And he knew my routine. I was just going to drink my way slowly across the, the shochu cooler shelf and then start over, you know, just trying to learn the differences and get a baseline for the tasting notes that I was trying to develop on this category. And one night he's just like, hey, we're trying this tonight. And he pushed a, a very small pour of what turned out to be barley shochu in front of me. And I took one whiff of it. I was like, oh, that's not sake. It's not even cold. And he's like, no, that's, it's shochu. I'm like, shochu? What, what's shochu? And I had lived in, in Korea for a couple of years before moving to Japan. So I was very familiar with soju. Mm -hmm. And that struck a little bit of the fear of God in me because I don't <laughs> know, you know, that, that's a good way to construct a hangover right there. And I was like, <laughs> okay, this is shochu. It's an say that again and he said it again and and okay well it sounds a little different took another smell it was it was a little toasty a little bit of banana a little bit of little nuttiness there i was like took a sip oh that's not bad at all and he's like oh you could tell the look on his face was like foreign guy didn't hate it all right let's find <laughs> something that he will detest so he turned around and he pulled down a different bottle and poured that for me and it was sweet potato shochu and back when i had just arrived in japan sweet potato shochu was funky and i put my nose in that i was like whoa 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 that's not shochu i think you made a mistake and he's like no they're both shochu wait that can't be shochu if the first one was shochu the second one can't be shochu they're so different no both shochu i swear they're both shochu i'm like how and he says <laughs> shut up and drink it and so i took a sip and it was one of the most interesting flavor profiles I've ever tasted in my life. Sweet potato shochu is nuts to be messed with. And I was like, wow, that is really interesting. These are both spirits, right? And he's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we keep going. Third one, I, I get the order wrong after this, I think. But there was a rice shochu in there. And then there was a buckwheat shochu, which is in Japanese is soba. Soba noodles, a lot of people may be familiar with, is a staple Japanese lunch dish. And and sometimes dinner, too, honestly. And then the last one that evening, I think, was oh, absolutely kokuto sugar shochu, which is made from a really lightly refined dark sugar, like dark, dark, dark sugar, and very famous in the southern islands of Japan. And I was just blown away by this, how many different flavor spectrum. I was just yin-yanging back and forth across it. These were all so completely different. By the time we got to buckwheat, I was I was like I was able to call it. I was like I put my nose in. It's like this smells like this is this is super grainy. This smells like those noodles. He's like, yeah, it's a soba shochu. I was like, oh my god, this is crazy. <laughs> it smells exactly like that. And I was I was just you know it was the same thing as the whole you know home brewing thing way way back in high school where I was supposed to be doing one thing. But then I got distracted by this other this other thing. I got distracted by home brewing and moonshining. And in this case, you know, I was supposed to be in Japan working and supporting my girlfriend and, and supporting both of us. And, you know, my hobby was going to be to study sake. And then it was just a record scratch on that evening. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, where is this made? 
And that was pretty much the end of the bartender being of any help whatsoever. He didn't really know anything about shochu. This was just as shochu was about to have a, a serious heyday in Tokyo and other large met- metropolitan areas of Japan. But prior to that, it had mostly been like the drink of choice down in Kyushu, which is this, you know, the large southwestern island before you start getting all the way down into Okinawa. Mm-hmm. And so I was... Just, where is this made? He's like, I think it's down south. I was like, okay, can I take a train there? He's like, no, I think you have to fly. And so I did. And that was the beginning of this entirely new chapter in my life, which started in early 2003. And we're, you know, I still feel like I'm just getting started. I think you touched on some really good points there and emphasizing just how diverse shochu really can be. And that's really what's fascinated me so much about it. I still haven't even tried any shochu, admittedly, but it really makes me intrigued to really dive into it and learn more about it. Because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I sense a lot of parallels between that and kind of like the craft beer scene and what's happening there in regards to just experimenting with so many different things. I mean, like everything is shochu with this. I mean, you could, it could be made with sweet potatoes, rice, barley. It's all still shochu. And that's what's, it's fascinating. It is. It really is. And I, and I love that connection that you just made. That was very apparent to me from the start was that, holy crap, I've somehow run face first into the craft beer of, sh- of spirits. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are guardrails on how authentic shochu can be made. But, you know, there's still an absolutely obscene number of approved ingredients by my count. And it's actually way more than this when you consider some of the big basket categories, but there are 53 different approved ingredients allowed, you know, allowed in the production of making premium or authentic shochu. And one of those ingredients, of course, is the big basket category of grains. And that's rice, that's, that's rye, that's wheat, that's barley, that's corn. So you can just imagine just with that one quote unquote ingredient group, You've got all of these different expressions, and and that just scratches the surface of it. There are about 5,000 different brands of shochu produced every year in Japan, and I would argue that it's the most diverse spirit on the planet in terms of its flavor and aroma profile. Yeah, no, I was I was really just having a blast uh, doing some research on this and getting caught up into it because there's there's really so much to it and it's so complex. So I, I guess uh, with that in mind, I kind of want to back up for a little bit and break things down because we've mentioned shochu and we I briefly mentioned awamori. So can you uh-huh. get, briefly describe the difference between the two? Great, yeah. So these are Japan's indigenous spirits. Awamori is a little bit older and it's basically the spirit of choice down in Okinawa Prefecture which stretches from southern Kagoshima prefecture all the way almost down it's a it's an archipelago of islands that stretches almost basically to the point where if you're up on top of the tallest point in the last island in the chain you can actually see Taiwan and so it's it's a tropical environment and for hundreds of years they've made a series of different products that were referred to as awamori and now today it's basically been codified as a rice spirit that is single distilled in a pot still and made with 100% rice koji. And that's koji. Some people out there, anybody in the food world may have heard this word before. Koji is absolutely essential to Japanese brewing or fermentation traditions. Koji is used to make 
miso, it's used to make soy sauce, meeting, sake, of course, shochu, awamori, and other products. There are koji whiskeys, there are gins made with koji, there's rum made with koji. Koji is absolutely essential to Japanese cuisine. And so it's in this tradition of, of awamori, it's a single distilled spirit made from kojified rice. And that tradition eventually gave sort of influenced the genesis of shochu later on as distillation technology slowly made its way up the island chain by boat centuries ago and made its way up to southern Kyushu, namely Kagoshima. They figured out very quickly that, hey, it, if you distill something, it has a higher alcohol proof and it's way more shelf stable. So it kind of took over like wildfire. And let's not forget the fact that it was very difficult to make sake in a subtropical environment due to mash spoilage. So distillation was um, a very, very useful way to one, one of the useful ways that was employed to make sure they weren't losing some, so much raw material in the process of trying to make their hooch. So shochu is different from Awamori, remember, awamori is only made from rice. Shochu has a mm -hmm. few less guardrails on it, a few less boundaries. It can be made, as I said before, from 53 different approved ingredients, including rice. And there's also no limitation on the types of koji that can be used. Now, for awamori, you can only use so-called black koji, which is the indigenous strain. And that's a literal translation from Japanese. They call it kurokoji, which can tra be translated as black. And a lot of the time it does make the rice, when it grows on the rice, it does look very, very, very dark, almost black. The types of koji that are more common, actually the type of koji more common in shochu production is so-called white koji, which is actually a mutation from black koji that's around a century old. And that's typically used in the shochu industry. And then the sake world, they use yellow koji, which for reasons that are extremely chemical in nature, doesn't produce a lot of acidity in the fermentation and therefore is very difficult to use in a hot and humid climate. Hence, most sake is made in the north and made during the winter uh, when you can control these, these uh, environmental issues a little bit more astutely. But mm -hmm. I guess I've, I've, I've droned on for a few minutes there, but that's the general <laughs> breakdown for the differences between shochu and awamori. And let me just remind listeners that shochu and awamori are completely distinct from sake in that they are distilled. They are spirits, mm -hmm. just like gin and tequila, mezcal, whiskey, rum are spirits. They tend to be lower proof spirits. They're usually 25 to 30% ABV, but... Their spirits. No, definitely. Yeah. And, and no, that was a really great breakdown. And I'm glad you got into a little bit of a definition on Kolji as well, because that's such an interesting rabbit hole in and of itself. Just oh, yes. kind of the rough research I did on it. I mean, because it's because Kolji is actually a mold, correct? Correct. That's right. It's Japan's national mold. That's so it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> gosh, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, they compare it. They say it's similar to like the kind of mold you find growing on bread or on oranges, which I found just mind blowing. I don't know. <laughs> that's yeah, 
And when you think about all the mold we ingest normally in cheese and and other Mm -hmm. delicious things, it's only kind of nerve-wracking for a moment. And then (laughs) you're like, oh, wait, wait, this is is a normal part of really delicious things. And fortunately, (laughs) there are a lot of very accomplished chefs in the United States who are working extensively with Koji. I was just at a restaurant in Chicago. It's a pair of entities. It's Smith and The Loyalist. If you ever have a chance to go visit there, Hmm. they're making their own Koji in the kitchen. And they brought out, when they heard they had a Koji nerd in one of the booths, they brought out a plate with four different types of Koji on it that that they were preparing in the kitchen. One of them was on rice and one of them was on barley. And then they had two other substrates. And to the mortification of my dining mates, I immediately tucked into them and I was just stuffing this this moldy stuff in my mouth. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's food. It's delicious. Try it. <laughs> and and after some tr- uh, initial trepidation, they tried. They're like, oh, my God, that is so deep. And, <laughs> you know, Koji just Koji brings the umami. And some people listening right now will have heard that word before, umami, U-M-A-M-I, which is that savory quality that we get in mozzarella cheese and in tomatoes and in meat, you know, especially red meat. And umami, uh, the umami can be enabled and added through koji as well. And that's why miso is so savory and soy sauce as well and many of the drinks too. Yeah, no, that's that's also very eye-opening, and it's it's so wild to think about all the different experiments that are going on in the food world and the drink world, and and all that. It's 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 also fascinating to me. But I guess speaking of of food and everything in particular, mm. and I'm sure this answer varies drastically depending on the context and the type of shochu that you're enjoying. But is there a preferred way that you like to enjoy your shochu? Like, do you pair it with certain foods, drink it on the rocks, etc.? Oh, great question. This is. A double-edged sword here because I'm going to say something that at once sounds liberating and then also somehow overwhelming. <laughs> shochu is incredibly flexible. It's, there's not a pretentious bone in shochu's body, so you really can drink it how you prefer. So that's mm-hmm. liberating in a sense. But then a lot of people will immediately move on to the next thought, which is, okay, but how should I drink it? Which is a lot of people want to have an authentic (laughs) experience, quote unquote, whatever that means. And Mm -hmm. so let me just talk about how people enjoy it in Japan. Shochu traditionally was enjoyed much of the time with either hot water dilution or cool water, mineral water dilution. And that brings the ABV down. It means that the, the drink itself is a little bit softer, yet still very aromatic. And it is extremely, it's expected to be consumed with food and it works very well that way. So my Hmm. favorite way personally, and this is a little bit of a, this is a little bit along the journey before you get to this point for most people, but I typically drink shoju and awamori mixed with hot water about 50-50. And Hmm. that just boosts the bouquet of the aromas. It creates this amazing mouthfeel. And it's just a slow sipper, and I absolutely love it. And it pairs really well with all different types of food. I've had awamori with lasagna that was amazing. I've had sweet potato shochu that goes so well with skewers or with raw skipjack tuna, or maybe it's a it's a pepperoni pizza. There's hmm. immense pairing opportunities. I've had barley shochu and kokuto sugar shochu that go amazingly well with Thai food. And so the pairing options are endless. And in Japan, I'll be perfectly honest with you, 
we are always snacking on something while drinking. And that's just a, that's just part of the drinking culture over here. I remember when I was in college and after that, I would often do my eating first and then my drinking separate from that. And I think there's probably a fair number of people out there that tend to conduct themselves similarly, but that's not really how it works over here. And <laughs> so it you tend to drink a little more slowly. You tend to be enjoying food with other people or and conversation. And today, I was talking about the tradition before today, the more modern ways of enjoying shochu in Japan are on the rocks and uh, with sparkling water in something of a highball concoction. And I think those are the four main ways to enjoy shochu, and all of them work with food in one way or another. The the options are virtually endless from what I'm gathering as well, just in the, the complexities and the diversity that shochu has in general. I mean, it only makes sense that the options for how to enjoy it, what to pair with it are also equally as endless. So now you touched a little bit on cultural aspects and I kind of want to pivot there for a minute because obviously you, you live in Japan, do business in Japan. So how is the adjustment, I guess, of doing business in Japan compared to doing business in the U.S.? What are some of those major cultural differences? Oh, that's a that's an excellent question. I think everything is different. Um, so the <laughs> I right now I am co-managing a business in Fukuoka, Japan, and then also a co-managing a second business in New York. So that's a long way of saying that I don't really sleep a whole lot. But the <laughs> the difference is the two companies are not financially intertwined in any way. There's no cross shareholding or anything. However, they do depend on each other's business for survival. So they are closely intertwined in that sense. And the teams talk a lot. There needs to be a lot of communication. It tends to come through me and my colleague and dear friend, Stephen Lyman. And we try to facilitate the back and the forth. And it is hilarious. Um, the teams <laughs> are in lockstep most of the time, but then there can be little... I, I often come back to this one point. In, in American business, there's often, and just in life in general, there's the, the maxim, well, never hurts to ask. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that over the past two years of being in business in the United States. We started that company right at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, just because we love a little bit of extra difficulty in everything <laughs> we do in life. And so, uh, yeah, no, it doesn't, doesn't hurt to ask can't hurt to ask. Well, one thing I've learned in my 20 years in Japan is that it very much can hurt to ask. You can damage <laughs> relationships just by revisiting something that was already decided if you're not extraordinarily careful and or the relationship isn't at the point to, to weather that type of doubting what was decided. And mm -hmm. so that, that's been often been a little bit of a tripping point for us where the team on the U.S. side wants to go back and negotiate something because, hey, it's it's the COVID era and things change all the time and we <laughs> need more flexibility here, but it absolutely can hurt to ask. So that's one thing that we're navigating all the time. And then another one that I come back to quite frequently is, this is more of a regulatory hurdle, but there really is a lot more care or a lot more consideration that needs to go into hiring over here, especially vis-a-vis full-time employees. Because of the way that employment law is structured in Japan, it's very difficult to fire uh, full-time employees, no matter how lazy or negligent they are. 
Hmm. It's not easy to do. They hold a lot of power, which I'm not saying is necessarily a bad thing, but、mm-hmm. it creates a bunch of other kind of unwanted effects in the labor market. And I don't know if we—that's a whole separate episode, <laughs> I think. But、yeah. you really do have to be careful, and it's not like in the states where you can. You, I, in Japan, you can hire somebody on the spot, but getting rid of somebody who is technically a full-time employee—that can be extraordinarily tricky from a legal standpoint. And we've learned that lesson in the incredibly drawn-out and painful way, and、hmm. that's one of the reasons why people are very hesitant to fire、uh, to hire full-time employees over here. But so that's、hmm. a couple of things that make a difference in how you approach business. Just like anywhere else in the world, relationships are key. Trust is key, but the way that you go about establishing those relationships and and strengthening that trust may be a little bit different. And things tend to move a little more slowly here. There's a few people who have said things move at the speed of Japan, and <laughs> that's I think that's pretty accurate. It's hard to imagine what that means if you if you're not living it, but once you've lived here for A while you're like, ah,、oh, yeah, nothing is decided quickly over here. Yeah, that's that's so interesting to me. And no, I find culture and language and everything in, in general just so fascinating. Just so subtle differences. And yeah, to your point,、uh, I mean, that was news to me. What you just mentioned about it being kind of a more complicated process to get rid of different employees in the the workforce. Because I mean, there are certain places, I guess, depending on the context and the company and the situation, to where. I don't want to say it's it's closely similar and maybe not as in that same wheelhouse necessarily, but if like、mm-hmm. the place has a union or something like that, it can kind of be a weird similar thing to where even if someone does get fired or something like that, like the union will bring them back type thing, and it just makes a very different work environment. So I can yeah, I, I can completely understand that. Yeah, it's it's just one of those extra things that you have to wrap your head around if you're gonna stay in business for long. And I guess I want to、uh, pivot to a moment because I know you're also the author of the first non-Japanese book about shochu and aromore, the shochu handbook. Now, did any of these language and cultural differences make it difficult to put the book together? Were there any, I guess,、oh, difficulties、yeah. that were outside of that realm? Oh yeah, there were.、Um, Jeez, <laughs>、uh, it it was a long process putting that book together. Anybody else who's who's out there thinking about writing a book or. Or working on on manuscripts or, or whatever, or trying to find an agent. It's a very very involved process, and my process was complicated by the fact that access to information. You, you basically have to speak Japanese or、mm-hmm. read and read Japanese, and that was not something that I came here equipped to do. I am a relatively quick study in terms of just picking up language from communicating with people, and I learned to. Speak conversational Japanese from going to baseball games. I'm a huge Tokyo Swallows、mm. fan, and I spent years just sitting with the same group of hilarious people who are a couple decades older than me, who speak less than zero English most of the time. And I started figuring out how to communicate with them, and that served me very well when I was traveling down south to meet shochu and, and awamori makers. And I became basically that one. Kind of one-dimensional, well, two-dimensional communicator in that I could speak and listen, but I couldn't read and write. So I was、mm-hmm. collecting information orally from people. I was asking questions, and they would tell me the answer, and I would write, take notes, and then I would use that to inform my writing. But about 
three, no, two versions, three, about three versions of the manuscript in, I had an epiphany, which was rather horrifying, that I just realized, who's going to read this book? I'm some weird, obsessed American kid living in Japan. I have no qualifications that would lead anyone to believe that I have the right to talk about this topic authoritatively. Mm-hmm. I have connections, I have friends in the industry, but that's not enough. So I started looking for a way to change that. And I found that SSI, which is a uh, food and bev organization here, actually has a what's called the Shoju Kikisakeshi certification course, which for lack of a better term is kind of like a Shoju sommelier. And I was like, okay, well, there maybe that's the answer. So I paid to take the course and it was great. It was meeting with other people from the trade who were trying to bone up on their on their shochu and awamori liter- literacy so that they could more easily sell the products or talk about the products to their customers. And I was like a pig in poop. I was having a great time. We were we were doing tastings together and sharing tasting notes and the whole nine yards. And then I I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. So there's a test, of course. <laughs> there's always a test. Mm-hmm. And so I paid for I can't remember how many years prior several years prior like a a a bridge version of that test to go home and practice and on the train home when I ripped this big envelope open and started looking through the papers (laughs) you I can only imagine my face on the train it dawned on me like oh yeah I don't really read this language yet (laughs) this is going to be a really difficult (laughs) test yeah, because it's not going to be—it's not going to be like an interview test. It's going to be a, a pen and paper test with a tasting crammed into the middle of it. Mm-hmm. So I started over. I paid for the distance version of the course. So I paid for the course twice, and I sat at home. And this—the textbooks were delivered. There were these two thick textbooks that were delivered with this series of DVDs that were like the narrated tour of the textbooks. And I, I popped the first one in. I could un- understand exactly what he was saying, but my God, was it boring. <laughs> so I realized that the <laughs> DVDs were going to kill me. And it, it was just some guy sitting at a table straight to camera, kind of riffing on what we were supposed to be getting from the various chapters. So I was like, okay, we do not need to look at those again. So I went to, I went to a, a cafe the next day. I sat down with my with my dictionary and the textbook and I started on page 1 and it took me several hours checking every kanji character to get through it might have been a full paragraph and it took me hours and then I that was about all I could take so I went home went back the next day and the next day I did about the same amount but eventually by doing this a little bit every day I was able to do a whole page in an afternoon and then I was able to do four pages in an afternoon and over a period of about probably what took, it felt like an eternity, but it probably took about eight months, I finished the textbook. I read the whole Mm -hmm. thing cover to cover. And then I thought, well, you know what? That's probably not enough. So I went back to the start and I did it again. And so then I started, now this is just reading. This is not writing. That's a whole different skill. (laughs) But at at least while taking notes and and doing all of these things while I was reading, I was getting a little bit faster at at writing a lot of these characters. And there's a lot of repetition in the industry. So a lot of these, like the kanji for for make or production is used in in several different combinations. So there's a lot of repetition. Hmm. And so... That was a significant hurdle for me for me to get where I wanted to go, but 
I think it's another indication of how when I'm curious about something, there's very little that's going to deter me, whether it's whether it's legality or whether it's something as trifling as learning to read and write Japanese. <laughs> it's not going to prevent me from getting where I want to be. And so I got to a point where I felt like, okay, this is no longer going to be the, the shochu kikisake shi test is not going to be a shochu test. It's really just going to be a language test for me. And once mm -hmm. I could get myself to a point where I felt like I could be coherent in writing sentences and things, that's when I, I signed up to take the test. And I passed by the skin of the skin of my teeth. <laughs> I and I, you know, there's four sections to this damn test, and I was the last one in the hall for each section, with the proctor just kind of standing <laughs> over me, counting down the minutes. And it was brutal because I was nervous, and I'm not a good test taker. So I, like a lot of my kanji knowledge and the ability to write, just flew out of my brain. So I was like searching the test booklet, the questions booklet for the exact kanji that I needed, and then I would copy it into the into the answer sheet. Oh, it was brutal, and I I'm sure it shaved about half a decade off of my life. But <laughs> I did get I did get that damn qualification, and when I had it, I felt a little bit more confident that I was going to be taken seriously when I if and when I actually published the book which I did as you said in 2014 mm -hmm. and it was so that was that was the major challenge for me was getting to a point where I felt like where I was no longer an imposter you know what I mean where I felt like mm -hmm. I could I could go out there and authoritatively talk about these things and nobody could be like yeah but who are you and I and I would be able to say well you know what I have studied I, I studied really hard and it almost killed me so give me a break <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. I honestly can't even wrap my head around that because the, the process of writing a book in general, I mean, is daunting to most people, I would say, but to write a book and to take all of these different resources and to translate them into a language and a culture that is just not your native tongue or anything, there's so much work and there's so much due diligence or so much repetition involved in that. And oh my gosh, I commend you so much for <laughs> taking that on. That that does not sound easy at all. <laughs> it was a it, let's it was a character building experience. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, I would I would agree with that. Oh my gosh, because I'm sure there I'm sure you ran into this issue so many times, but I'm sure there are different words or phrases or different things that maybe different words that don't necessarily translate as well in English or different, no, you know, yeah. things that may have a completely different meaning, you know, culturally, or there's always that aspect too. So to take all of that and to translate into something cohesive that I guess, uh, an English speaking person can digest and, and go through. I, I mean, I commend you for it. Kudos. <laughs> uh, cheers. Yeah, it was, it was, I'm very, very glad I did it. And actually now thinking about working on a next book well working on a next book proposal so we're mm -hmm. going to do it again i don't i don't have time for that either but i think it's necessary because there's a lot of people who who need that resource and there's really not a whole lot out there there's there's the shochu handbook then steven lyman published the complete guide to japanese drinks which has a good section on shochu and awamori and mm -hmm. then i contributed the shochu and awamori content to the Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails, which was released late last year, which is an amazing tome. And anyone mm -hmm. who's interested in drinks should probably pick up a copy. But other than that, there's not a whole lot yet. So 
I'm really excited about opportunities like this to spread the word. And I also am extremely supportive of anybody else out there who really wants to start their shochu journey. So to anyone listening to this podcast right now, please hit me up. If you, if you want something explained or if you need direction in terms of resources, just let me know. And I'm highly accessible online, I guess is, is one way to put it. So reach out. No, I, I can definitely tell you're you're definitely a wealth of knowledge in this realm, and I, I feel like I'm not even scratching the surface on everything. I'm just getting immersed into this, but it's it's all so fascinating, and I'm just getting caught up in your passion and energy for it. And oh my gosh, so I guess on that note, with the I guess the potential book proposal thing in mind, are I guess are there any other up or projects or anything related to your businesses or anything in the works right now that you're really excited about? Well, yeah, we're excited just to be bringing. The bulk of my time is spent managing a company called Honkaku Spirits. Honkaku means authentic in Japanese. And we bring a portfolio of mostly shochu into the United States and distribute it there. We're not a distributor. We're an importer. But we work with mm-hmm. various distributors to bring it to major markets around the United States. And so if you go to Honkaku, H-O-N-K-A-K-U spirits.com, then you can see a little bit about what's going on there. And that website, honestly, is a decent resource for people who are starting their journey or want to learn a little bit more about shochu and awamori, maybe a little bit about koji. If I can do another book shout out for people looking to learn mm-hmm. about koji, I highly recommend Koji Alchemy by Jeremy Umansky and Richard Shi. That's an absolutely amazing reference. So for anyone who wants to learn about how to cook with koji and how koji works on a more biological level. Koji is, is coming, folks. It's it's not a secret in Japan, It's but it is kind of Japan's best kept secret, as are Shochu and Awamori. And we're excited also because we're bringing our first Awamori. It just landed. That's not true. It just got picked up at the port in New York and will be hitting store shelves hopefully by June 1st once it, hits, once it gets through our distribution network. And it's, it's just exciting to bring these amazing... 500, 600 year old drinks to new audiences in the United States and beyond. And it's fun to blow minds. I spend, <laughs> uh, you know, months in the States traveling around doing staff training at, at bars and restaurants, doing sales calls, public tastings. And there's nothing better than getting a bartender who, who knows their stuff, but just hasn't really been explained, it hasn't been exposed to shochu or awamori and sitting them down and tasting them through a couple of things and watching them have an identity crisis, you know, <laughs> it, it, like as much as how do I, how did I not know about this? You know, that level of, of just mind blowing activity going on up top. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and I'm sure I don't need to, I don't need to explain to anyone that traveling around the world and pouring people drinks is an enjoyable pastime. But uh, (laughs) fortunately, that's where I've gotten myself. And hopefully I'll be able to stay in this space for decades to come. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's just living the dream right there. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't mind living out of a suitcase, it's cool. Yeah, it could be it can be a, a very great way to meet a lot of people, see a lot of places and and hear a lot of interesting stories. So I'm I'm definitely up for it. 
we covered so much ground in this conversation. This is such a blast. Uh, Now, is there anything you wanted to touch on uh, before we get into plugins? I know you already plugged a few things, but I guess uh, before you uh, plug anything else. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Well, I guess guess just if I can take one thing from my journey up to now, up to 2002, it would be that it's really important to stop – waiting for other people to sign on to your goals and your dreams. You, you got to stop waiting for other people to somehow give you permission to take that leap. Obviously, there are family concerns involved. There are financial concerns. There's healthcare. There's all of these things that you, you need to have your eye on. But just go for it. You know, there's there's if you believe in it and you are really passionate about it, make it happen. I quit a full-time professional professorship at a very well well regarded Japanese university in Tokyo, Japan in, at at the beginning of the pandemic and co-founded this business in the United States. I already had another business that was driving me nuts in Japan. But I was like, what, well, you know, this needs to happen. And mm-hmm. fortunately, I didn't listen to the dissonance that was making me doubt myself. And there's a lot of it. If you all you have to do is listen. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need not to do. And so I guess that's what I would I would <laughs> advise people to, uh, is the best way forward. Oh, definitely. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it's it's so important if you have a passion to really just pursue it, to go after it, to, you know, it, kind of ignore the naysayers. And if you truly believe in something, to just really just go out, make it happen, do what you can. I mean, and I can just tell. I mean, you're so passionate about this. It's just infectious. And it's Oh my gosh, it's so much it's such a blast uh talking to you about all of this and Cheers. I could talk to you all day honestly, but I guess uh, <laughs> I guess I'll leave it at that positive note, but um is there anything else that you uh want to plug that maybe you didn't mention before? Well, if if anybody would like to interact uh, without, you know, email and the the formality of that, then you mm-hmm. can find me on Twitter at Chris Pellegrini. I'm very easy to track down on Instagram at Christopher Pellegrini and I think my Facebook, my public Facebook handle is my name backwards. And mm-hmm. then if if you're cool with me plugging a a podcast, is that okay? <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. No, um, yeah, go go for it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, I Along with my co-host, Stephen Lyman, who, as I said before, is the author of The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks, we have a bi-monthly podcast about Japanese spirits. So not just shochu and awamori, but also Japanese whiskey, gin, rum, and a bunch of other things, including eau de vie. If you're into that sort of thing, then please check out Japan Distilled, which is available on all major platforms. Yeah, awesome. No, and I'm so glad you plugged that, and I'll definitely make sure to plug all of this in the in the show notes. But yeah, no, I've been having a blast listening to Japan Distilled and also Sake on Air. Just ah, learning cheers. so much about this. It's uh, yeah, it's it's also fascinating to me. Maybe just because I I don't know that much about it, and I'm just kind of getting caught up in it, and it's everything's like a new experience. But no, they're they're a blast to listen to. So no, that's a great plug. <laughs> cheers, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. No, this is, like I said, this is such a blast. It is honestly such a blast learning about all of this. And I wish you nothing but the best in your business, the podcast, all the amazing things you have in the works. So yeah, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Eric. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. And to everybody out there listening, drink slowly, drink Honkaku. There it is. All right. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) All right. We'll keep in touch. Take care. All right. Thanks, man.
Thank you so much for tuning in and checking out the show. Links to Christopher's socials, the podcast Japan Distilled and Sake on Air, and other resources can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review for Juxtapose Journeys wherever you stream your podcasts. And maybe tell a friend or two about the show. Any feedback is always welcome and appreciated, and it helps the show reach more listeners. It also keeps new episodes coming out. If you're an entrepreneur, creator, or live an interesting lifestyle, take a few minutes to fill out the questionnaire I have linked below. If you're a good fit, I'll be sure to get in touch with you to be featured on a future episode. I just ask that you have some patience, as I'm pretty backed up with interview requests at the moment. So thank you to everyone who's reached out and has expressed interest in being on the show. The Juxtapose Journeys logo was designed by Darius Norwood. The website was designed by Elise Benner. And music has been provided by Young Pioneer. Editing for this episode was done by Kai Will. Final mixing and interviews are conducted by yours truly, Eric Spitz. Thank you for listening, and remember to never stop exploring 